Hello and welcome back to the God Story Podcast. I'm Brent Siddle and our very special guest on the show today is Dr. Alistair Roberts of the Theopolis Institute in the States. And he's here again to talk about the book of Daniel. And uh, we're looking today at Daniel chapter 9, another action-packed chapter. Alistair, hi and welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me back. Oh, it's a pleasure. We've got to try and finish the series on Daniel uh, God willing. Now, what happens in chapter 9? Chapter 9 begins in the first year of King Darius, and Daniel at this time is reading another prophet, the work of Jeremiah, and within Jeremiah he reads about the 70 weeks of years, or the 70 years for which the nation shall go under the rule of Babylon. Now, this is something that's discussed in Jeremiah chapter 25. He's reflecting upon this prophecy, and it seems that the time has arrived and yet it does not seem as if Israel is going free so this is a matter of concern for him he um, comes to the Lord in prayer and he raises the situation of the nation their sin their guilt and places that in the context of the Lord's faithfulness and righteousness and then the Lord answers him he sends the angel Gabriel to him and he has this vision at the end of the chapter concerning 70 weeks of years corresponding to the 70 years but giving a longer time period for the full fulfillment of all the expectation so how does the number 70 this the 70 years and the uh, weeks of years how does it relate to the symbolism of the number seven in the bible and indeed how does it go back because we dealt with this in a previous podcast how does it all go back to the seven days of creation the seven days of creation is obviously the the base for this sorts, sort of number. When we think about the seven days of creation, it leads up to the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, the day of rest, completion, and fulfillment. And so the expectation of the people of God is very much concentrated around the number seven. Seven represents the arrival of rest and fulfillment, and it's the completion of the cycle. So as long as you're within the cycle, you have not yet reached the seven. Now, as you look through the calendar of Israel, the festal calendar, it's based upon the number seven. So the first month, you have a feast of seven days for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Then you have a seven times seven period following the Feast of first fruits to the Feast of Weeks. And then after that, you have a cluster of feasts within the seventh month. So the seventh month begins with the Feast of Trumpets. Then you have on the 10th day, the Day of Atonement, and then you have another seven-day feast that corresponds with the feast that begins the, the year, and then that ends with a special festal day. So you've got a cluster of feasts in the seventh month. The seventh month begins the second half of the year, but it's also the climactic month. The feasts, the major feasts, are seven days in length. You have a feast... Uh, apart from that, the third pilgrimage feast, alongside the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Feast of Tabernacles, is the Feast of Weeks, which is based upon seven times seven after the Feast of First Fruits. You have seven days of sacred assembly. You have seven feasts. And so you have the number seven bound up within the calendar in all sorts of different ways. In addition to that, you have it connected to year cycles as well. So on the seventh year, you'd have the sabbatical year, which would be a year for the release of debts. And it would be a significant year for giving slaves their freedom. Now, when you get to 
seven times seven years, you have that period followed by the year of Jubilee. So the Jubilee begins in the year after the seven times seven. So it's the 50th year. And that year is a year for everyone returning to their ancestral properties within the land. Now we can see that pattern also being worked out within the story of Israel. So the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Pentecost, as we more typically call it, is associated with the events of Sinai. Sinai is an event where the people of their freedom, their liberation from slavery is declared. And it leads up to a further event, which is a sort of playing out of the meaning of the, the, the year of Jubilee, the year of the Lord's release in the events of Jericho. They enter into the land, they go around the city seven times, and on the seventh day they do this cycle seven times, they blow seven trumpets, etc., and the walls come down. And it's a sort of jubilee pattern with the nation receiving the land from the people who had formerly been inhabited it, inhabiting it. So the land is given to its true owners. Now, if we think about that pattern more generally, it's something that is found on many other occasions in scripture, particularly in the prophets, uh, the prophet Ezekiel. The prophet Ezekiel uses this concept of the Jubilee in many different ways. So if you look at the numbers of the book of Ezekiel, the numbers 25, 7, 49, and 50 are pervasive. So seven associated with the Sabbath, 25, half a Jubilee, 49, seven times seven, and then 50, the full year of the Jubilee. Now, as you go through his visions, you'll see that that number is wrapped up within the measurements, particularly of the of the temple that he presents at the end. It's the number that represents the division of the land in key, key areas, the holy land around the temple. And then it's also something that's bound up with numbers of dates and also in the numbers of steps, for instance, in the holy place, all these sorts of things have these numbers bound up with it. So the number 7, 25, 49, and 50 are of great significance. Now, as we look through scripture, we can see that these are used in other occasions. We already see something of this in the way that Lamech in chapter 4 of Genesis talks about being avenged 70 times 7. Jesus talks about forgiving your brother 70 times 7, which I think is related to this principle. Now, when we get to Daniel, I think we've also got sevens in other places. We've got um, numbers that would seem to parallel this, but also contrast with it too. So you've got things like the dimensions of the image in chapter three, 60 times six. Now we've got a 70 times seven. So that number is very significant. It's connected with Sabbath. It's connected with Jubilee. It's connected with the full entrance into the inheritance. And so it's a multiplication of the 70 years that he's spoken of by seven. And we can think about this in terms of if the first is a Sabbath year, then this is going to be the Jubilee. And this is wrapped up in Israel's history as well. So think about the fact that what takes place exactly 500 years after the Exodus. It's the completion of Solomon's temple com complex. So it's the full entrance into the inheritance. So this is a very important number. The fact that it occurs here, it's already freighted with symbolism. What are the block of weeks 70 or the, the 70 weeks of years, the 490 years that Daniel's told about? 
So the years are divided into component parts. Um, we've got seven weeks, 62 weeks, and then a final week that is also split. So as we've gone through the book of Daniel, we've already seen some of these numbers. So significantly, there is the number 62 back in the story of King Darius coming to the throne. He comes to the throne at the age of 62. And significantly, this is in the first year of King Darius. Now, it seems like Daniel recognizes this year is the year, the final year of the 70 years. And the final year of the 70 years of Jeremiah should lead to the release from captivity. Now, you can think about this in terms of the events of chapter, of chapter 6, with Daniel in the lion's den, the lion's den representing captivity and exile. He's released from that in the first year of Darius's reign. And now he's expecting, isn't that going to happen for Israel too? And that expectation is one that is a deep longing that Israel would actually return. That Israel would know the sign of forgiveness and restoration that um, it's, he's, he and others are longing for. And the prophecy of the 70 weeks of years is as if there's going to be this initial fulfillment. They're going to return to the land, but there's going to be this larger fulfillment that is expected in the future. And so what we're looking forward to is something greater that is still awaited. There is this expectation that is going to be met on the immediate horizon, but then that expectation that's met on the immediate horizon also calls out with longing for a greater horizon. Now, this is something that we see as a feature within the biblical text more generally. There's what some have called a telescopic character to prophecy, where there is an initial prophet, prophetic horizon that presents the fulfillment of some expectation. And then that expectation being met on that immediate horizon also draws our attention to a greater horizon on which it will be met on a greater level. So we can think about the ways that Jesus presents the events of his cross as a fulfillment of some of his prophecies concerning the, in the Olivet Discourse, concerning the destruction of Jerusalem. That looks forward to the later destruction of Jerusalem. And the destruction of Jerusalem could in turn be seen as a sort of anticipation of the end of all things. So we have different horizons, those horizons being related together and the events that occur on the initial horizon, anticipating events on the later. This is something that we also see often within the prophet Isaiah, for instance. Does the prophecy indicate then that all the Bible prophecies about Israel and Jerusalem will come to pass by AD 70? There will be a wrapping up. There's a sort of an end of an age or an epoch. And we see this suggested also in Matthew chapter 23, all the blood of right, from righteous Abel to Zechariah will come upon this generation. It will be a sort of an closing of that particular volume of God's work, and then the opening of a new one afterwards. And so I think it is the wrapping up of an age. There's going to be the closing of an old order and the opening of a new one, or the full um, setting up of a new one. That new age has already been initiated in the work of Christ, but it is not actually fully affected until... AD 70, when the old order is removed. Okay, then the $6 million question, what do we date the 70 weeks of years from? It's a good question. So there There's are a number of ways knows. of approaching it. We could think about, and many people speculate that these are purely symbolic numbers, that there's no correspondence with actual years, and 
that is a position that's quite widely held. Others have them dated to very different periods. So the seven years happened early on, then you'll have the 62 years that is just this long indefinite period and we're still waiting for the final year. Now, it's worth noticing that there is a sort of um, what's happening in miniature at the beginning. We've already seen this in the fact that the 70 years corresponds with the 70 weeks of years, which kind of blow it up to a higher level. Now that happens within the 70 weeks of years too. So the 70 weeks of years begins with a seven year period, which is a sort of jubilee pattern within the larger uber jubilee pattern. Now, when we're thinking about these years, we can take them as symbolic. We can also take them as literal. We could take them as literal divided up and so there are gaps between the different parts of them. Or we could think about them purely representing indefinite periods of time, but in representing them symbolically. Now, there are a number of ways that we could start this. We could start it with the decree of Cyrus, so around 538 or 539 BC, um, after he's taken over Babylon, sending the um, captives back to Jerusalem. Is that the decree that's in view? the rebuilding of Jerusalem, is that actually in view there? The temple is rebuilt around um, from 515 to 520, or 520 to 515 BC, and that's the initial stage. Later on, we have the arrival of Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, again, those sorts of dates are much debated. James Jordan takes a different date, different dates for these than I would. You see um, Ezra and Nehemiah as early within the chronology, I would see them as much later. So I'm seeing around 458, that sort of period of time. And if that is the sort of date that we're thinking of, then it's about a literal 490 years to the time of Christ. The question then is, how does that fit in with the identification of particular figures? What is the initial seven? year what is the initial 49 year period or seven weeks and so those questions are not ones that have tidy answers in any of these theories all of the theories have difficulties and challenges jordan speculates that there may be some sort of gap involved that there is a sort of delay of um, the lord's um, appearing and that there is this expectation for the arrival of the final week and it has not yet arrived as expected until the coming of Christ, and then it arrives. But we're left with lots of interesting questions here. Yes, I mean, if the decree of Artaxerxes is, what was it, 457 BC, if you take that literally and add 490, you get 33 AD, which is sort of the historical date that everyone thinks that the Lord was, was crucified, the year the Lord was crucified, or am I being too simplistic about things? I mean, that, that would be my inclination to connect it with the later um, decree, not so much the decree of Cyrus, but this is about the, so Jerusalem has the initially, the temple is rebuilt. Jordan has argued that we should see the rebuilding of, of Jerusalem as being connected to that. But Jerusalem's still in ruins many years later. I mean, Nehemiah, even after they've rebuilt the um, city, he describes the fact that, uh, rebuilt the wall, he describes the fact that the city is largely in ruins, it's largely depopulated, and I would date that as um, quite a bit later than the initial rebuilding. It's um, around 70, 80 years later. So I would think that that's the time 
um, that we're thinking about the rebuilding of Jerusalem and its wall. So then uh, the later verses of the chapter, verse 20, does verse 26, for example, speak of the death of Jesus and the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70? Yes, so I think um, that last week is particularly to be related to the work of Christ. Um, so the end of that week, we clearly, the week does not end in AD 70. It would end, if we're taking an actual literal 490 years, it would end before that. Um, so it would end maybe around the time of some have speculated the stoning of Stephen. So that's at that point, Jerusalem's doom is spelled out. But halfway through that week, Christ is cut off. His ministry lasts for about three and a half years. And so that's one way to understand it. And then the early ministry of the church in Jerusalem. And then that's seen as the final thing. They turn away from Jerusalem and go to the Gentiles. Yes, and so the person who puts the stop to sacrifice and tribute offerings in the temple mentioned there in verse 27 would be the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. Yeah, so if we're, thinking, yes. mm. if we're thinking about what's taking place here, a lot of Daniel's concern is about the temple, about the sacrifices, about the forgiveness of the people's sins. That's what's occupied him in his prayer. The people's sins need to be forgiven, and that is connected to the return to the land, the restoration of the people. As long as the sins still hang over them, um, they can never be safe. There's always a sense of uh, looming doom. There's the sword of Damocles hanging over them. There's always this possibility they might be just sent back into exile once again. Now, what is going to deal with that finally and completely? What is going to fully atone for the people? And this will be the fulfillment of all the purification offerings. The purification offerings or the sin offerings were there to deal with the, the guilt or impurity of the people that prevented them from having access to the presence of God. So we have those laws given in places like Leviticus chapter four and six. But of course, most importantly, in the form of the Day of Atonement, where you have a very special form of the purification of sin offering might also think there are other occasions where we have purification offerings but that is the primary example that's the great example and i believe anticipating the fulfillment of purification in an eschatological event so the day of atonement is not one of the daily sacrifices it's not one of the regular calendrical sacrifices that you'd have um for instance on the Feast of Tabernacles, where you'd have day after day, there'll be a set of sacrifices offered. This is a very significant sacrifice performed once every year, a very unusual type of sacrifice, a sort of exalted sin offering, where you have a pair of goats that are divided by lot, and one sent off into the wilderness, the other offered as a sin offering. So it's a sort of exalted sin or purification offering. And it's the one day of the year where the high priest can enter into the most holy place. It's the as I've suggested, is that have you tried switching it off and on, and on again day? It's the day when the whole system of the sacrificial system is rebooted and it's set up again. And so it's anticipating the fulfillment of sacrifice as purification is offered once and for all. And that's what happens in Christ's sacrifice. And so that does away with the need for the sacrifice. Of the blood of bulls and goats doesn't cleanse. Ultimately, we are cleansed by the blood of Christ. 
What's the detestable wing or wing of detestables there in verse 27? So we've talked already about the way that Antiochus Epiphanes sets up a sort of abomination of desolation within the temple. And we can think about the way that we have anticipations at many points of things that will happen later. Now, Christ talks about in the um, Olivet Discourse of the abomination of desolation spoken of in Daniel. And I think he has this in mind, where there's a previous abomination of desolation that's spoken of. And this is suggesting there's going to be something similar in the context of the final events of the age, which would relate to AD 70. And after that period of time, that will be the conclusion. Now, we can see this in a number of ways. It could be the complete corruption of the priesthood prior to AD 70. And that is very clearly something that occurs. Or we can see it as connected with the persecution of the church, that that is the sort of abomination of desolation. I'll be more inclined to see it as associated with the the events that Christ talks about in the Olivet Discourse, which would be the corruption of the priesthood. Yes, I think, um, does the wing, some people say the um, the wing refers to the, the eagle ensign of the Roman army when it comes to destroy Jerusalem, but others, I mean, I'm fascinated by uh, James Jordan's interpretation, where he thinks it refers to, if I remember rightly, the wing of the high priest's garment, and therefore it's symbolic of just exactly what you're talking about, the complete corruption of the temple system and the fact people were buying and selling the high priesthood. Yes. <laughs> Short answer. <laughs> well, that's just about our time. Uh, thank you, Alistair Roberts of the Theopolis Institute in the States, talking there about Daniel chapter 9. And thanks to our creative team at Liquid Edge, who sponsor this podcast and take care of things behind the scenes. Alistair, thank you so much. Thank you. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. If you want to help us make more great episodes like this one, you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God Story Podcast supporter. You'll receive our undying gratitude, plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. Just visit patreon.com slash godstorypodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash godstorypodcast. As always, you can get in touch with us via our website, godstorypodcast.com.